Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here in the auditorium. We're glad there are those of us, of you, joining us from all around our country this morning as well as around the world. We thank you for joining us live stream this morning. Luke chapter 3. We are continuing our study on the story of Jesus going through the gospel of Luke for the next 40 or so Sundays. And uh, last week we started the series, and if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to watch that service online. It gives you sort of the overview of the book and, and will lay the foundation for this entire series on Sunday mornings. Uh, we learned last week that the story of Jesus inspires passion, inspires wonder, and inspires witness. And today we're going to begin looking at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And so if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, please turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. What I want to do today is I want to go through this passage of Scripture and, and have us all get a feel for what is taking place and what is going on and how we can apply some things to our life. But then I want to I wanna take the second half of the message today and show us that the same things that Jesus in his humanity relied upon during his life in ministry are the very same things that are available to us today to rely on and depend upon as we live our lives and as we serve the Lord as well. So we're going to begin looking today at the baptism of Jesus. His public baptism by John the Baptist marked the official start of his ministry, all right? And his baptism also was a way for Jesus to identify himself with the people that he came to save. That's what baptism is for us. It, it is not only a picture, if you will, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is also when we get baptized, we are saying to the world, I am identifying myself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And why we do that publicly is because Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. We are not to be ashamed of our faith and of following Jesus Christ. Therefore, he calls us to publicly be baptized. It is the first step of obedience for us as Christians to follow the Lord in baptism. Now, his baptism, again, not only marked the start of his ministry, but it shows us that he's willing to identify himself with us. The word baptizo in the Greek literally means to be immersed, which is why, again, here at the Oasis, we will immerse you under the water, okay? Because that's what Jesus did. He was immersed into the water. And so even in that, he is showing us I've come to earth as God, but also as man. 
And I am immersing myself into earthly life. And I am immersing myself into your life, into you all as human beings. I am not a God who is going to remain aloof and distant. I am a God who's coming right down and I'm going to be right smack dab in the middle of it all. And I am the God who continues to do that today. I am willing to get right in to the middle of your life and to be there for you and, and to be in every aspect of your life. That's what the baptism of Jesus is to represent for us. So Please follow along. It says in Luke 3, 21, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my one dear son, in you I take great delight. Then you'll notice after the baptism of Jesus, after he identifies himself with human beings, after he immerses himself under that water, then you have Luke reminding us of his genealogy in verses 23 through 38. Why does Luke put the genealogy of Jesus between his baptism and the temptation of Christ in chapter 4 because he wants to remind us that Jesus is not only uh, the Son of God, he is the Son of Man. Again, identifying himself with us, immersing himself into our lives. And I want you to keep that in mind when you think about the Lord's baptism, especially that word immersed. Jesus Christ is all in with us. He, he holds nothing back. In a sense, that's what our baptism is supposed to signify, that we are all in with Jesus at this point. We are, we are willing to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and by being baptized, we are expressing to the world, yes, I am all in with Jesus. I am allowing my life to be immersed in him, okay? That's exactly what Jesus did with us. He is immersing himself into our lives. And he's saying, I'm not just a God who's way up there. I'm a God who's right here. I'm a God who's near. I'm a God who's close. I'm a God who's always available. In fact, what we're going to be looking at today, this passage, very much reminds me of what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses or our human frailty, but in all points was tempted like we are, yet without sin. Jesus never failed. And because we have a high priest, a mediator between us and God, who can sympathize and empathize with what it means to be human, because Jesus is 100% God, but also 100% human, that we know that he knows what it means to be human. And he knows it in every respect other than sinning. Therefore, the author of Hebrews goes on to say in the very next verse, we therefore then can come confidently and boldly to the throne of grace 
to receive mercy and find grace anytime we need help because Jesus understands what it's like to live on earth. Jesus understands what it's like to go through everything that we as human beings go through, whether it's spiritual, emotional, or physical. He identifies with us, and that's what his baptism represents, immersion and identification with his people, also reminding us of his identity as God the Son, but also as the Son of Man. But now we come to chapter 4. And it's very significant that as soon as Jesus steps out, if you will, steps forward and begins his public ministry, what is he faced with? He's faced with opposition from the spiritual enemy, the devil. Now, I say that up front because that's really good for us to keep in mind. Any time as a Christian that we want to follow the Lord a little bit more closely, that we are stepping out and stepping up maybe in our commitment to the Lord, in our devotion to the Lord, maybe we're taking on serving him at a higher or greater capacity, whatever that looks like, you and I have to be aware that our enemy is not just going to sit back and just let it happen. He's going to begin to push against that. It's exactly what he did with Jesus. And whether you are here today or watching online and, and maybe you still have not, you know, embraced the idea of a personal and real devil, let me tell you, the Word of God is our final authority on anything and everything, and the Word of God tells us and teaches us there is a devil and he is real. And Jesus met him, and we will meet him too. And we must be aware of that, especially, again, when we're maybe starting out into something new for God, or we're raising our level of commitment, or we're serving him in a new way. There will be spiritual opposition. And you see that in the ministry of Jesus. So we follow along in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations. This reminds us, it's not wrong or sinful to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. You and I are not going to escape temptation. Temptation is part of being human and part of living on earth. It's not sinful to be tempted. Okay, because Jesus was tempted. In fact, I think the way you and I need to look at temptation is more from the way God looks at it, testing. Look at it as a test. You and I are going to be tested. Our faith is going to be tested. Our commitment to God is going to be tested at times. And one of the avenues that that testing will come from is from the devil. Now, it also will come from our flesh. It will also come from the world. But sometimes it will come from the devil. So notice, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, Jesus was famished. I can honestly say, there have been times, obviously, that I've experienced hunger, but I've never been famished. 
I've never been that hungry. I've never went without food for 40 days. It's hard for me to go without food for a couple hours, like the rest of us probably, right? So here again, Jesus knows what it's like to even suffer, to be tired, to be hungry, to be thirsty. The devil, our spiritual enemy that the Bible teaches us about, comes to him and says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it, for it's been relinquished to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. So then if you will worship me, all this will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. With their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. Notice something there before we go back to the temptations themselves. The devil left him, but it was always going to come back at a more opportune time, at a time when he thought Jesus was even more vulnerable than he was then. We have a very persistent spiritual enemy. He will never give up. We maybe give up, but our enemy never gives up. He will always keep coming back at opportune times, times that he views where we are most vulnerable, something else we need to keep in mind. Now, the temptations that Jesus went through aren't exactly the temptations that you and I would go through, but they are similar in some respect to where we can apply some of the things going on here between the devil and Jesus with our own lives. In a sense, these three temptations are a test of God's provision in our life, the bread, a test of God's preeminence in our life or allegiance to him, the kingdoms of the world, and a test of his protection of us, the very last temptation about Jesus throwing himself off the temple. You and I are tested, if you will, in that way. Do we trust God to provide for us? Do we, I, sh I guess I'll say it this way. Are we willing to put God first in our life, preeminent, and have our allegiance sealed to him no matter what, and our protection from God can be tested? Are we trusting God to protect us? And in each of these, what the devil is really doing and what he does with us is he's really testing our partnership with God. Are we wanting to take matters into our own hands because we don't think or see or trust God to do for us what we feel needs to be done? And we then sometimes take matters into our own hands rather than looking to God and trusting God for the answers and the provision and the protection? That's what Satan was doing here with Jesus at this vulnerable time in his life, and that's what God or the devil does to us. Let's take the first one, provision. 
Obviously, Jesus was hungry. Could Jesus have had the power to turn the stone into bread? Yes. But Jesus is showing us we have to trust that God will provide for us. And we need to look to him for all that we need. And in his timing, in his timing, he will give us what we need. He won't give us everything we want. He never promised that. But he will promise to give us everything that we need. In fact, this is why even many times we even as Christians, we get into trouble because we go out and we buy things materially and physically and stuff that we think we need that we really don't need. And then we even get ourselves into financial issues because we're not really looking to God to provide for those needs or trusting him to do so or waiting for that to be given to us in God's timing when God says it's right. We take matters into our own hands and go, go and grab, grab and all of that. And what this temptation is telling us is, look, God has promised that everything we need will come from his hand. And he will give us what we need when we need it. Do we trust him? Test of provision. And we have that test even today, don't we? To trust that God will provide for us rather than us taking matters into our own hands and going out and grabbing it for ourselves. Second, Will God be preeminent? Will our allegiance to God stay faithful and firm no matter what the devil or the world offers us? In a sense, what the devil is offering Jesus is a quick power grab. Jesus, I know one day you're going to rule and reign on this earth, but these kingdoms are mine right now. Instead of waiting for who knows how long till you get to rule here, why don't you just bow down to me now, give me your allegiance, and you can get right to ruling. In a sense, we understand that because, again, the devil will come to us and say, don't wait on God's timing. It could be years before that comes your way from God. You have the opportunity to go out and grab it right now. You go for it. But in doing so, what we end up doing then is we are losing our allegiance to God by then showing allegiance to the devil or the world or to some other entity because they're able to give us now what we want and we're not willing to wait for the deferred gratification of having it come in God's timing. And then you come to the whole protection thing. And he takes Jesus up to this place and he says, you know, God says he'll protect you, so why don't you just throw yourself off and let him do it? And we obviously know that God will protect us too. But, but what we learn here is that you and I can't presume upon God. We, we can't put ourselves in certain situations and then force God's hand to move in a certain way and say, well, God, yeah, I did that, but you didn't show up. See, in a sense, then, what that does is we're trying to control God. We're trying to manipulate God. And Jesus says that's not the way we are to live. Yes, God will protect us, 
But we can't choose to not be partners with God and let God lead us into the situations and circumstances that God wants to, and somehow we make a bad choice and then expect God to show up and somehow, you know, rescue us from this when we've done this to ourselves. And then when God doesn't necessarily work or show up the way we want to, then guess who gets the blame for it? God does. We blame God instead of taking the responsibility ourselves. So you see all of this weaving in and out that's happening here in these temptations. And one of the reasons why the Spirit led Jesus to these temptations was to show us in his humanity how you and I, as human beings, are to deal with the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to also remind us about what does that look like in our life? How do I take what Jesus went through and apply that to my own life? What are the things that I need to be careful of as a Christian who's wanting to follow the Lord when I know that it's not wrong to be tempted, so I'm going to be tempted, I'm going to be tested, and how do I then begin to prepare myself for that and all of that? Part of that is to do what Paul says in Ephesians 6, to realize that not every day will we be tempted or attacked by the devil, but he will come at times that we don't know. So we've always got to be ready, and therefore we always got to wake up every day and put on the full armor of God so that we can withstand those times when the devil comes at us or when our flesh is weak or when the world is offering us something that is contrary to the will of God or to the timing of God in our life. These are the things we learn by Jesus going through the temptation. But again, we also are learning in this passage of Scripture about something else that's really important. And that is that the same four resources that Jesus had around him to be able to begin his ministry on earth and do life in ministry are the same four resources that you and I have. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about those and hopefully encouraging you as you face whatever you're facing right now in life. The first one, I want to go back to the passage on his baptism. And Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers in writing about Jesus' baptism that mentions this phrase. Notice verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, the heavens open. Luke is the only one that mentioned that while Jesus was being baptized, he was praying. Prayer. Prayer. That's one of the greatest resources that we have as Christians is being able to pray to the Lord. As the writer of Hebrews says in 4.16, let us confidently come to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. Prayer, prayerlessness, is one of the tragedies of the church today. It's one of the the crises of our Christianity today is that we do not pray as much as we should. The New Testament teaches us, pray without ceasing. In everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer. You know, take it to God. And and Luke, 
maybe more than any other gospel writer, mentions how Jesus bathed his life and ministry in prayer. I just want to give you a few examples this morning. Keep your finger in Luke 3 and go with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Look at verse 12. Now it was during this time that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and he spent all night in prayer to God. Then go over to chapter 9, verse 18. Chapter 9 and verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Then go down to verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white. Go over to chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he stopped, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. And then finally, one more, chapter 22, verse 41. Luke chapter 22 and verse 41. He went away from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. And don't miss what he had just said to his disciples in the previous verse. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. It is also Jesus who in Luke chapter 18 verse 1 said these words. People ought always to pray and not give up, lose heart, become discouraged, throw in the towel. Ought always to pray. Luke is showing us how even as the Son of God, he was always praying. He was always found in a private place, communing with his Father, talking to his Father about things, and praying. He was doing that obviously for himself in his humanity, but he was also doing that as our great example, as the one who is modeling for us, this is how you do life and ministry on earth. This is how you stand up against temptation and, and, and testing and, and the attacks of the devil and all that. You pray. You live a life of prayer. But that's not the only resource. Go back now to chapter 3, verse 22. In the very next verse, you see the Holy Spirit show up. And as he's being baptized in Luke 3, 22, it says the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. It was as if God was giving them a picture that the Holy Spirit, literally, of God was going to surround him in his life and ministry. And we see that. If you go over to chapter 4, verses we've already read, look at verse 1. Jesus was, first of all, full of the Holy Spirit. Literally, it means he was thoroughly permeated with the Spirit. He, he was full of God's presence and provision that comes to us through the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us, as Christians in the New Testament era, to be filled with the Spirit of God. Are we allowing the Spirit of God to fill us every day? 
every moment of the day. We are to live with the filling of the Spirit, to empty ourselves of ourself and to be filled with the fullness of God. Then notice at the end of verse 1, he not only was full of the Spirit, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was guided, he was directed by the Spirit of God. Are we allowing the Spirit of God to lead us, to guide us, to direct us? Many times over the years, we as Christians have used sort of this example of, I'm not the one to be in the driver's seat of my life. I am to be the passenger. The Holy Spirit, who lives not only, you know, around us, but lives in us as Christians, he is to be the one that is driving you, our life. We are to be looking to him for the leadership of our life. We are to be learning how to let him guide and direct our every move and our decisions and choices in this life. Are we taking the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, and are we living by his presence. And then verse 14 of chapter 4. After the temptation, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, in the strength, in the might, in the abundance of the Spirit of God. Are we living by the strength, by the power, by the abundance that can only come to us through the Holy Spirit. And again, like Jesus told his followers, he says, it's actually going to be to your advantage that I go back to my Father after I ascend, after my resurrection. Because I'm going to send you another comforter, one who's equal to me, not, not one who's less than me, one who's equal to me because he's just as much God as I am. And when he comes, he not only will be with you, Jesus tells his followers, he will be in you forever. And you and I, if we are a Christian, if there's been a time in our life where we trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the Bible teaches us at that moment, the Spirit of God comes in and lives within us. And man, when you've got the Spirit of God, you've got all the resource you need and I need to live our life and to do ministry. That's why Jesus told his followers before he ascended, he said, you wait here in Jerusalem and you wait for the promise of my Father because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when he comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, Jesus said. You'll have all the power you need through my Holy Spirit who lives within you. Prayer, the Holy Spirit. The next resource that Jesus had is the love of God. And we sung so much about this great love today. Notice what happens as Jesus is being baptized. It says, a voice, the Father's voice, came from heaven and said, you are my one dear son, one who has a special love and relationship and affection, and, you, and in you I take great delight. Literally, the Father was saying, in front of all the witnesses there, Jesus, you are my joy and delight, and I love you. Think about that. Even the Son of God was given affirmation and assurance right at the very beginning of his life and ministry that the Father loved him and that he was his joy and delight. Why is that important? 
because every one of us here today, we are loved by God. Even if you've never accepted the love of God, you are sitting here or you're in your homes today somewhere and God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he cannot love you any less than he's ever loved you and he will never love you any more than he ever loves you because his love for us is unconditional and constant. And, and the realization and the reception of God's love in our life should be the one transforming thing that makes such a difference in our life every day. Listen to these scriptures. John writes, See what sort of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called God's children, 1 John 3, 1. He goes on to say later in 1 John 4, in this, God's love for us is revealed. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and that he sent his one and only son to this earth so that we might live through him. You even hear that resonating with the Gospel of John, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you feel so loved today? See, we're not just loved. We are so loved. We are abundantly loved. That's why Paul could never get over how much God loved him. That's why I believe that God chose him to write a chapter like Romans 8, where he says nothing, no, there's nothing in, in heaven or hell or on earth or under the earth. There's nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, says, you know, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, and then Paul says, there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Man, when you and I realize and begin even in a small way to realize how much we are loved by God each and every moment of the day, and we begin to receive that love, it will transform your life like nothing else or no one else can. Let the love of God flow into your life. Let it be a waterfall, not just a little trickle. Let it be a waterfall that literally washes over you every day and throughout the day of how much God loves you. Jesus had that. He had prayer. He had the Holy Spirit. He had the love of God. One more resource. Go over to the passage on the temptation. And you see here, did Jesus try to somehow logically uh, argue with the devil about these temptations? Did, did, did he try to even maybe in his own mind try to figure this out? No. You know how Jesus responded over and over again to the temptations or tests that the devil gave him? The word of God. Over and over again. Notice verse 4. Jesus said, it's written, and he quoted scripture. Verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written, and he quoted scripture. Verse 12, Jesus answered, it is written, and he quoted scripture. You and I have the word of God. That's why the Bible says there's no greater weapon that God gives us than the sword of the spirit. We have the word of God to combat any test, any trial, any temptation. We have the word of God that guides us. 
That's why David wrote, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I know where I'm going and where I should be going because your word shows up and shows me. It's my light. It's my salvation. Jeremiah, it's more than my necessary food. I love the Word of God. I want to consume the Word of God. I want to immerse myself in the Word of God. Let me ask you today, what's your relationship to the Word of God? Are you immersing yourself in it? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Are you memorizing it? Are you living it? The Word of God is one of the greatest resources besides prayer, besides the Holy Spirit of God, and besides the love of God that God gives us in order to be able to do life and ministry. And so often in Christians' lives, like prayer, the Word of God is neglected. Even in our churches today, the Word of God is somehow pushed to the side and marginalized. We, we do everything else but teach people the Word of God. Now, let me also say this. Notice, though, something also in verse 10. You know who else eventually used the word of God in this temptation? The devil. The devil quoted scripture to Jesus. The devil knows the word of God. Now, he doesn't interpret it correctly, and he'll twist it for his own ends, but the devil uses the word of God. That's cautionary for us, because that means that as a Christian, I not only better immerse myself in the Word of God, I better know it accurately. I better be interpreting it correctly because my greatest spiritual enemy can use the Word of God against me. And if I don't really know what God's intent is in that Scripture, I could maybe listen to what the devil is saying because he's taken the Word of God and he's misinterpreted and he's twisted it a little bit for his own end. That's, again, not only why we need to know the Word of God, but by we, we need to make sure we have the right interpretation because many times Christians not only destroy their own lives but destroy other lives around them when we do not interpret the Word of God accurately. Accurately. Because the devil knows the Word of God. I hope that what Jesus went through in his first few days of ministry on this earth, I hope that they will encourage you and I that God is teaching us here not only how to deal with temptation, but also to remind us that the very same resources that Jesus had for his life and ministry on earth are the very same ones available to us. Prayer, the Holy Spirit, the reality of the love of God, and the Word of God are there for us each and every day, each and every moment of the day. I'm going to ask you all just to sit tight. I'm going to ask our worship team to come and get set because we're going to do something that we haven't done for a little while here at the Oasis, but something we do every so often. And I just felt impressed as I was coming here today to, to, to do this today. Some of you here today may be going through a time of testing. You, you feel like you're being pressed, right? What's the Bible tell us to do in times like that? Pray. Pray. We ought always to pray and not give up, faint, lose heart, become discouraged. And the Bible tells us not just to pray for ourselves, but to pray for and with one another. 
So here's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to ask right now, if you are here today and you, you're going through a time of testing, but you would love to have some prayer for you today, would you just stand right where you're at in your seat? Just stand. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. You stand. Yeah, you stand. All right. And here's what we're going to do. When the rest of us stand, you notice who the people are who have stood. I want to ask you, obviously, to join us in our worship today, but I want to ask that those of you that may be around some of these folks who are standing, would just a couple of you be willing to sort of circle around them and one of you be willing to pray for them and pray with them today as we end our service? So would you stand, please? And let me just say, Father, would you be with us in our time of worship and our time of coming into your presence through prayer? May all of us, God, be strengthened and encouraged in these next few moments because we know, God, your spirit is here, your love is in this place, your word has been declared, and we are worshiping you, God, right now. We are wanting to put you in your rightful place. And we are saying here today that we're not the answer, and you're not going to find the answer to our life situations in the world or anywhere else. You're our answer, God, and we're coming to you. We are coming to you, God, casting all our cares upon you because we know that you care for us. And God, would you use this time, especially with those who stood, who are going through a time of testing right now, to encourage and strengthen them as their brothers and sisters come around them and pray for them as we worship you now. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.